All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Jeff Peck. I am one of the elders here at Portico Church Arlington. Uh, I recently rejoined the elder team earlier this summer after about a year and a half off. And so you've seen me up here doing things like Chris just did, corporate prayer, leading Lord's Supper. Uh, But it's been a while since I've been able to be up here and preach. So I'm looking forward to that opportunity this morning to open up God's word with you all. We are continuing in our series this summer looking at the Psalms, and we're going to be in Psalm 8 this morning, uh, the next Psalm in our, in our series. And we're going to be primarily focused on Psalm 8 this morning, but there are some hyperlinks within Psalm 8 that if you click on, take you to other parts of the Bible. So we're going to be from Genesis all the way close to the end of the New Testament this morning. We're going to be popping around a little bit, looking forward to seeing what God has for us to see, to reveal about himself to us this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 8. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some of the pews. The words will be up here on the screen as well. Uh, I will read it and then pray, and then we'll, we'll get going. All right, Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to be gathered this morning in your name to sing praises of worship to you and to hear your word. Pray that you would give us eyes, pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of the scriptures this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, as we're in Psalm 8, I want us to see three things that this psalm is showing us. Psalm is showing us three things this morning. The first is the majesty of God. The second is the glory of mankind. And the third is the necessity of Christ. So the majesty of God, the glory of mankind, and the necessity of Christ. And we'll start first by looking at the majesty of God, and specifically a couple of ways that his majesty is revealed to us. And the first way we're going to look at how his majesty is revealed to us is in his name. So in the first two verses here, Our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength. 
Another way of translating that is established praise because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Uh, This idea of lifting up the name of the Lord, recognizing it, praising it, actually continues where David left off at the end of the previous psalm, Psalm 7. The last verse of Psalm 7 says this, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. So we're continuing on with this, with this focus that David has on the name of the Lord. And a couple of things to point out right away here in verse 1 is, if you notice in your Bibles, the first use of the word Lord there is in all caps. And you may know that that's a way to distinguish or to show that what's being actually said there is the name Yahweh, which was a personal covenantal name that God used to refer to himself and called for his people to call him in the Old Testament in particular. So David is addressing him by this personal name, and then he's saying that he is our Lord. And so David is, David is speaking on behalf of himself and behalf, on behalf of the Israelite people and addressing the Lord as our Lord, recognizing that he is particularly the ruler of his people. But even more than that, he's the ruler of the whole world. How majestic is your name in all the earth. So Jesus is Lord, or Yahweh is Lord, God is Lord of everyone, whether they acknowledge it or not. And here David does acknowledge that he is ruler of all the land. His majesty covers the globe. And he says, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then the word name here is not just a word that's used to refer to God, like we all have names in this room that distinguish us from each other, Right? But his name, that, that phrase means something deeper than that. It's his character. It's referring to his nature, who he is, what he is like. And so to understand a little bit more about what that means, what the name of the Lord means, we'll click on our first hyperlink this morning. And we're going to go back to Exodus chapter 34. And so just quick, con- quick context of what's going on here in Exodus 34. So Moses has delivered the people out of Egypt. God has used Moses <laughs> to deliver the people out of Egypt. And they're making their way to the promised land, and they are at Mount Sinai, and Moses has gone up, and he's received the Ten Commandments from God. And while he's up there, the people of Israel, at the bottom of the mountain, they form this golden calf and ridiculously start worshiping it as the thing that brought them out of Egypt, as their savior, as their rescuer. And so Moses comes down, is understandably angry. He throws the tablets down on the ground, and he rebukes the Israelites. And after that, he goes back up the mountain to, be with, to meet with the Lord, to intercede, to plead for God to show mercy to his people who have sinned against him, and also to get some, some new tablets, because he broke the last ones. And so it's here we pick up in verse 5, Exodus 34, verse 5, and it's here where God reveals, proclaims, or announces his name, his character to Moses. And the Lord descended, this is, sorry, this is Exodus 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands or to the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. This is, this is the name of the Lord. This is his character. This is who he is. And what a glorious description it is. What a wonderful God we serve. I mean, just look, just look at these attributes. Who in here this morning needs mercy? Who here needs grace? Who here needs a God that is slow to anger? Who here needs a God whose love and faithfulness is steadfast? Who here needs a God that forgives your iniquity and transgression and sin? And who here needs a God that is just and will deal with the wickedness in this world? Our only response to such a wonderful and majestic God should be the same as Moses' response here when he bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, worshipped this majestic God. And back in Psalm 8, even babies and infants who are weak and have no strength in themselves sing out in worship to the mighty God who, as we will see, uses what is seemingly weak to triumph over his foes. So Psalm 8 shows us, reveals to us the majesty of God is revealed in his name and his character. It also reveals the majesty of God in his creation. Verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Another hyperlink here, back to creation, back to Genesis 1. And David is captivated by the majesty of God as expressed in his creation, specifically in the heavens, the moon, the stars. David is astronomically in awe of what God has done. And David describes the act of creation as the work of your fingers. The picture here, for me at least, conjured up this idea of a craftsman who's working with their hands and they're able to hold something that they're able to like manage and use to create something or fashion something. A carpenter who's able to take a knife and work on wood, carve it into something, piece of furniture. A mechanic who uses a wrench or a socket to get a car working again. A doctor or a nurse surgically repairing a broken body. A parent preparing a meal. For this room, a lawyer or a consultant using their fingers on the keyboard to put together an opinion or a report. But in all these images, right, the picture here is somebody using their fingers to manage something, something that they can control, something they can manage smaller than them. You can hold all these things in your hand, right? And so it's talking about creation here. David uses this, this poetic imagery to refer to God and how he set the moon and the stars into place with his fingers, so I did, I did a little research, and, and by research, I, of course, mean Google. I, I went to Google, and I, and I wanted to find out what was the largest star in the universe, at least the known, the largest known star. Um, 
and uh, that award would go to a star that has been inelegantly named U.Y. Scooty. U.Y. Scooty. There's a whole Wikipedia page on how these stars are named, so when you should be preparing your sermon, you can read that page <laughs> and learn some things. But no, according, according to estimates, U.Y. Scooty is so massive that you could fit five billion suns within its volume, the volume of its sphere. Five billion suns. Just for context, if you can even put that into context, so there's, you can fit one billion planet Earths into the sun. So you can put one billion Earths into the sun, five billion suns into U.I. Scooty. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. I, I don't know about you, I can't, I can't fathom these sizes, this scope. It's just beyond my mind. I don't know. When you're talking about one billion times five billion, right, it's just, it's massive. And in Psalm 8, the poetic expression David is using to compare God to these astronomical objects is as if he is holding them in his fingers. It's the majesty, the power of God dwarfs five billion suns. And again, like Moses, we should find ourselves trembling in worship before such an omnipotent God. So we've seen the majesty of God as expressed in his name, the majesty of God as expressed in his creation, and now the psalm proceeds to consider, perhaps surprisingly, the glory of mankind, the glory of the men and women that God has created. So after looking at the heavens and the stars, David's response starts in verse 4, against the grand backdrop of the universe, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. It would appear to us that men and women are insignificant, little specks compared to the sun and the stars, the planets. And yet the scriptures reveal through these rhetorical questions in verse 4, that God pays attention to us mere mortals. And even more than that, he cares for us. He cares for us. The creator God, who is mighty enough to hold gigantic stars and planets in his fingers, cares about his people. He cares for you. He cares for you. I think I've been in the church a long time. I hear that phrase, and yes, God cares for me, right? And and then it just kind of slides off. But you might be coming in here. Who, you might be coming in here this morning, and you might you might really need to hear that today. God is near to the brokenhearted. So if you're hurting this morning, if you're coming in here this morning with pain, maybe you're suffering from an illness or chronic pain, He cares for you. Maybe you have been hurt by someone who loves you who you love, who you thought loved you. He cares for you. Or you may be yearning for a spouse or yearning for a child, and yet you are discouraged because those yearnings have not been fulfilled. He cares for you. Have your sins been forgiven? 
but yet you still live with the painful consequences of your past, the sinful mistakes you've made in the past, and you have to live in those consequences. Praise God, your sins have been forgiven, but there's still consequences for our sin. If that's you, God cares for you. Are you coming in this morning with anxieties that maybe drown the joy from your life and make it hard to get up in the morning? He cares for you. Whatever you've brought in this morning, whatever pain, whatever worries, you can bring them to God. 1 Peter 5, 7 directs us to cast our anxieties on God. Why? Because he cares for you. So this psalm teaches us that God cares for us, and it also teaches us that God has crowned mankind with glory and with honor and that he has given us work to do, to have dominion or to rule over the works of God's hands. We have another, we have another hyperlink here, actually two hyperlinks. We're just going to click on one for now. It's going to go back again to the end of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, we see that mankind, that men and women, are the pinnacle of God's creation, made in his image, and crowned with authority to rule his creation. Genesis 1, 26. This is, uh, this is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I want to read from here briefly. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Uh, Theologians have called these verses the cultural mandates, the phrase that's used. Uh, And it's where God directs humans to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to cultivate it, to care for it, to use the resources of the world for human flourishing. And in the cosmic org chart, we humans were set lower than the angels, but we have authority over the rest of creation that's been delegated to us by God. The psalm says, psalm says we've been crowned with glory and honor to do this. It's important to remember that, that the glory and honor, any glory and honor that we have is derived from God, and it's not intrinsic in and of ourselves. Any glory and honor that we have is because we've been made in the image of the most glorious and most honorable one. And while we have been given responsibility to rule over his creation, we are still ruled by him. We are to follow his good and righteous commands. We are to trust and obey what he says. And therein lies the problem. Because from the very beginning, we have resisted God's rule and authority in our lives and have chosen to do things our own way. Genesis goes on to tell us that the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord told Adam that he could eat of any tree of the garden of, the, of any tree of the garden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And if he did, then death would follow. And we know what happens, sadly, as the story progresses. Adam chose to reject God's rule, satisfy his own desires. By eating the fruit, he was specifically told not to. And this sin has tarnished the glory of mankind. It's brought a curse on the human race. It's brought a curse onto all of creation. And this is why work is hard. This is why relationships between people are difficult. This is why natural disasters and tragedies occur. This is why our our bodies break down and eventually die. Creation is groaning out because of sin. And so we need someone to fix this. We need someone to reverse this bad news. And so we come to our third point this morning, the necessity of Christ. Third point here is necessity of Christ. And where Adam failed to faithfully wear the crown of glory, Jesus succeeded for us. One more hyperlink to click on out of Psalm 8, and it's going to take us to Hebrews chapter 2. If you're able to turn there, feel free. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. And what we're going to see in these verses is that Psalm 8 is ultimately fulfilled by King Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection are the ultimate demonstration of his care for us. Hebrews 2, verses 6 through 9. It's going to sound familiar. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone." Jesus, for a little while, was made lower than the angels. That is to say that God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, willingly became a man, and while remaining fully God, he took on human flesh and condescended himself to earth below the heavenly realms, which was his rightful place. And later in Hebrews 2, we read that Jesus was a faithful high priest in the service of God, making propitiation for the sins of his people. Another way of saying that would be he was able to sacrifice himself for us. He was able to take the wrath of God for our sins in our place because he was faithful, because he was righteous. Unlike Adam, he did not fail. Unlike Adam, he did not sin when he was tempted by Satan. Unlike Adam, his rule and dominion are perfect. 
His righteousness made him worthy to suffer and die for his people, and after which he was crowned with glory and honor and exalted above all things. God the Father raised him from the dead. And 40 days later, Jesus ascended, raised back to his rightful location, exalted to a place, a throne in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. This is how Paul puts this in Philippians. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ today is seated and reigning at the right hand of God the Father. His victory is sure. He has defeated his foes. He has silenced the enemy and the avenger. All things have been subjected to him. Now, we don't see this reality in its fullness yet. Satan's influence in this world has been limited, but not eliminated. Since power has been crippled, but not completely extinguished. But we can be assured that such a day is coming. The day is coming when Christ will return and usher in a new heaven and a new earth. And the results of the fall will be undone. Sin and suffering, pain and death will be no more. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and most wonderfully, God will be with his people. He will dwell together. He will be our God, and we will be his people. Until that glorious day comes, while we're still here, Christ has given us his spirit to those who have repented of their sins and are trusting in him for salvation. And that's what happened after Christ's ascension when he was exalted to the throne. He sent his spirit to dwell within his church. The spirit works within us to conform us to be more and more like Christ. Our Catechism class will know that this is called sanctification, right? Let's see, yes, okay. Sanctification, this process of sanctification, it enables God's people to carry out, if still imperfectly, that original mandate that Adam and Eve got back in the garden. The Spirit helps us to represent God to the world, to multiply and fill the earth by creating families and raising children in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord and to rule well over God's creation in whatever vocation, whatever calling he has called us to. All for the glory of God's name. And we can do all this while resting in the peace and comfort of knowing that Christ cares for us, that he is reigning over us, and that he is coming again for us. A 
Finally, we come to the last verse in Psalm 8, which repeats the first verse of Psalm 8, proclaiming again the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I'd like to end where we began, which was looking at how the Lord proclaimed that name, his name, to Moses at Mount Sinai. But this time I want to see, I want us to see how the work of Christ demonstrates the character of our God to those who have faith in him. So again, what, what was said in Exodus, what the Lord said to Exodus and Moses is that he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity, not clearing the guilty. And so we see in each of those is Christ. Christ is merciful to us. Because of his death on the cross for our sins, we don't get what we deserve. He takes the wrath of God for us. Christ is gracious to us. He gives us his perfect righteousness in exchange for those sins. Christ is slow to anger. He is patient with us, not wishing for us to perish, but that we would come to repentance. Christ will by no means clear the guilty. His life, death, and resurrection are sufficient for salvation, but only for those who repent of the rebellion and believe the gospel. And Christ forgives us of our iniquity, our transgression, our sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our God, that's our Lord. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Please play with me. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the Psalms and how rich and beautiful they are to our souls. Lord, your, your word reveals to us that you are the majestic, all-powerful creator of the universe. And we praise you for that. Your word reveals to us that you have crowned mankind with glory and honor to rule over your creation while we submit to your rule in doing so. Father, your word reveals to us and our own experience reveals to us as well that we, we reject your rule, we have sinned against you, we have not fulfilled what you have called us to do. But Lord, your, your word also reveals to us the good news that you have not left us there to perish in that state, but instead you sent Christ, you sent Jesus to become a man, to do what we couldn't do, to live a perfect life, to die in our place, to raise victoriously from the grave, and to ascend to heaven where he lives to intercede for us every day. Lord, that is wonderful, glorious news for us mere mortals, for us sinners. Lord, please help us to respond to your great love and grace with spirit and power lives that glorify you. 
Jesus' name, amen.